0: Welcome back to another episode of Shark Stories. I'm Anthony Medera and I'm joined again by my co-host Sarah. How are you, Sarah?
1: I'm all right. Ready for this one.
0: Yeah, and what do you think of the story?
1: It's fascinating. Men sunk another man's ship and they call it the worst shark attack in history.
0: It's true. (laughs) You know, just thought I meant it. Yeah, exactly, 100%. But I think people are going in numbers, yeah, probably, um, that at, at one particular time. I think it was during a period of three or four days. Uh,
1: yeah, three and a half, uh, depending on the sources. Mm, uh, the more dramatic one goes for five days. Um, the factual one goes for three and a half. Three
0: and a half days. So what we're going to cover today is what people term. If, if you Google and find out what was the world's worst shark attack or shark attacks, and it, this is what comes up most of the time. It's, it's, it's a story about the USS Indianapolis, which was a navy ship in the, in the Second World War, belonging to America, United States. At that time, it had delivered crucial components of the first operational atomic bomb to a naval base in the Pacific island of Tinian. And then on the, on the 6th of August 1945, the weapon would level Hiroshima. But now on the 28th of July, Indianapolis sailed from Guam without an escort to meet the battleship, USS Idaho in the late Gulf in the Philippines and prepare for an invasion of Japan. So there was a lot going on, critical time in the war um, and uh, actually nearing the end of the Second World War. Anyway, the next day was quiet with the Indianapolis making good progress at about 17 knots through swells of five or six feet. As you know, that's a beautiful flat sea in the Pacific Ocean. But shortly after midnight, a Japanese torpedo hit the Indianapolis in the starboard bow blowing almost 65 feet of the ship's bow out of the water and and igniting a tank containing 3,500 gallons of aviation fuel into a pillar of fire, shooting several hundred feet into the sky. So that's insane. So so I think one of the critical things as well here is that the way the Japanese hit the ship, it didn't have a chance. It was devastating. So the, the people ended up in the water very, very quickly. And then the same submarine fired another torpedo, And this one hit closer to midship, hitting fuel tanks and powder magazines and setting off a chain reaction of explosions. It effectively ripped the Indianapolis in two. So still traveling at 17 knots, the Indianapolis began taking on massive amounts of water. The ship sank in just 12 minutes. So uh, of the 1,196 men on board, 900 made it into the water alive. So just to understand that it really lost a significant amount of people before they ended up in the water. Um, the ordeal, what is considered the world's worst shark attack in history, was just the beginning. As the sun rose on July the 30th, the survivors bobbed in the water. Life rafts were scarce. The living searched for the dead floating in the water and appropriated their life jackets for the survivors who had none. Hoping to keep some semblance of order, survivors began forming groups, small groups, and some over 300 in the open water. Soon enough, they will be staving off exposure, thirst, and sharks. The animals are drawn by the sound of the explosions, the sinking of the ships, and the thrashing and blood in the water. Though many species of shark live in the open water, none is considered as aggressive as the oceanic white tip. For our listeners, I think it's important to to note people always talk about the great white and the bull shark. We've spoken about them in previous episodes. But Sarah, we're talking about the open ocean here now. So, yes. so it's the first time that we've hear the the name Oceanic White Tip. I don't know if it's something you can just tell us a little bit about the Oceanic White Tip.
1: These, uh, that's the one species I didn't personally been diving with yet. Okay. Um, but Mike Ratz and my, my mentor and, and friend, uh, he did um, dive with the Oceanic Black Tip as well. Okay. And he was telling me how uh, they analyze the situation all the time. They can speed up really, really fast. Uh, they're open-ocean feeders. And, well, Mike and uh, knowledge about diving out of the cage with white shark is unparalleled. So for him, these ones were like puppies, really. He didn't he say that they were very much faster than white sharks in the way they were behaving, but um, very controlled as well. So th- it's, it's fascinating also to know that if... People have been watching the movie Joes. A lot of people did. They say that was the story in the movie Joes was around a white shark uh, biting people, whether in fact it was most likely were oceanic white tip. Okay. They have a very round uh, dorsal fin with this white right on the top. Mm.
0: And their pectorals also and are also very wide, very, uh, yes. long and wide.
1: And, round. What and is, round. And that's the other thing, you know, when people say, what do you do if you see a shark? Like which shark? There mm. are f- more than 500 species. Well, that's true. If you see a lantern shark, just take a picture because they can fit in the palm of your hand. Mm. Uh, and yeah, they're not all the same. Eh?
0: But the oceanic white tip um, is big, enough, big and enough and it's got serrated teeth. I think that plays a big mm-hmm. role.
1: The thing is when something like that happened in the ocean, a big noise, a lot of food in the water. I'm not talking about the people. I'm talking about actual food from mm. the ship and... Um, a lot of other fishes would also be attracted to that. So you create a a very fast tiny ecosystem like you do with the fish aggregation devices uh, that people use to fish large fish in the open ocean. You just put a floater in the the water and within five to six days you have small fishes aggregating that will attract bigger fishes.
0: And the sharks come after that. Exactly. So
1: it's not that straightforward as... People fall in the water, shark comes. Mm. A lot of commotion happens. A lot of marine life comes to feed opportunistically, and sharks follow their food.
0: The sharks fed for days with no sign of rescue from, for the men. Navy intelligence had intercepted a message from this Japanese submarine that had torpedoed the Indianapolis, and the Japanese had described how it had sunk an American battleship along the Indianapolis' route. But the message was disregarded as a trick to lure American rescue boats into the ambush. It's just sad how this just perpetuates. So in the meantime, the Indianapolis survivors learned that they had the best odds in a group and ideally in the center of a group. The men on the margins or worse. Those alone were the most susceptible to the sharks. As the days passed, many survivors succumbed to the heat and thirst or suffered has- hallucinations uh, that co- compelled them to start drinking seawater, which was a death sentence. And their tongues swelled and and they became a threat to other to other survivors. After 11 a.m. on the fourth day in the water, a Navy plane flying over it spotted the Indianapolis survivors and raided for help. Within hours, another sea plant was there and it dropped rafts and survival supplies. When Marx, who was the pilot, saw men being attacked by sharks at the time, um, he disobeyed orders and landed in the infested waters. And he managed to taxi close by and started to pull and the wounded and stragglers into his aeroplane at great risk. A little after midnight, the USS Doyle arrived on the scene and helped to pull the survivors from the water. So that's the that's basically the full story of how it, how it turned out. But they were in the water for four, four full days. Reports from the Indianapolis survivors indicate that the sharks tended to attack live victims close to the surface. That's what led them to believe oceanic white tips, also because it was in the open ocean yes. at the time. And sadly... You're not going to find a lot of oceanic white tips on this planet anymore. They've been absolutely decimated, and they are really, really endangered. The first night, the sharks focused on the floating dead, but the survivors' struggles in the water only attracted more and more sharks, which could feel their motions through the biological features known as the lateral line. Receptors along their bodies that pick up changes in pressure, movement, from hundreds of yards away, as a I, shark. No, it's no. not
1: from hundreds. So, you they can pick up the movement within few meters. Okay. That is, you see what happened every time there is a shark accident. Mm. Things get exaggerated. Exaggerated. In the, so we're talking of, stories. So
0: we're talking maybe a yeah. hundred centimeters away. Yes, <laughs> okay. exactly.
1: Like fishes also has the lateral line yeah. is to feel the movement around them within few centimeters.
0: Also, what they the people did to survive is they. Were, wherever the dead people were, they moved them away from themselves or they got away from them so that the sharks could eat them first. Fair enough. <clears throat> and so they pushed the body away, hoping to sacrifice the corpse in return for a reprieve from the shark's jaw for even a little bit of time. Many survivors were paralyzed with fear, unable to even eat or drink. Um, one group of survivors made the mistake of opening a can of spam. So it's obviously got a heavy smelling. Sure. And, and, But before they could taste it, the the, the scent of the meat drew a swarm of sharks around them. So they had to get rid of the rations. But it must have just been an insanely scary. That's also scary.
1: Okay, it is scary. That's Mm. very very terrifying. But that's also something odd for me. Spam. They don't. Shark don't eat spam as much as they don't eat. People really, and mm. um, there was actually a study done on lemon shark in Bimini by Dr. Gruber, and I want to say something about Dr. Gruber just now, where they check the brain activity of sharks when confronted with different smell in the water, and they use some you know humans uh, blood and cow blood, and, and the brain activity was very tiny. As soon as they put in the water the blood of the fishes that that particular shark species eat, then the brain activity skyrocket. So they can smell this blood, but they don't necessarily react to it if it's not part of their diet. So this for me is is difficult to disentangle stories for people that survived Mm. an ordeal like that. Again, it adds on to the story, but doesn't add on to the. So, to the, from what a we scientific know, perspective, no, it doesn't make sense. To th- you? The fact that they were in the water for more than three days, that's a problem because was, human bodies can resist three four, to five days in salt mm. water before hydrating completely. Okay. Um, and also. So that was a
0: bigger danger to them than absolutely. the actual. Okay.
1: That that after uh, a couple of days they start waterlogging. The form to f- keep the people afloat wasn't as good as the one we have now, so you started waterlogging and dragging people under the water and drowning them slowly, which is a lot worse than any other death. I yeah, suppose. and then getting taken out quickly. Yes, hundred yeah, percent. Indeed. That's okay, so I mean, more it's, terrifying. Yeah, it's
0: it's really good to get the the latest perspective. Um, yeah. But anyway, as the I think more and more people got taken by the sharks, and the the actual amount of people that were killed or Eaten by the sharks at the time, ranged from from a couple of dozen to 150. So once again, you know you don't know exactly the amount. Yeah. So it, I suppose it was significant. And the fact is, uh, what makes this the world's worst shark attack is is the numbers that that were probably eaten, but we're not 100% sure. Yeah. And the amount of time that they stayed in the water just gave that opportunity. Of which, course. Um, but many, many more, like you said, succumbed to the heat and thirst. And then they would start hallucinating, and they would become actually crazy and start pulling people down and no, and so it became a really, really difficult I think this is just one of the worst ordeals and mm-hmm. I think it's one of the worst maritime dis- disasters in mm-hmm. United States naval mm-hmm. history at the time but of the in- Indianapolis the original one thousand one hundred ninety six crew, only three hundred and seventeen remained
1: on the bright side. <laughs> After the Indianapolis disaster, the U.S. Navy funded Dr. Samuel Gruber research in the 70s that put the basis for most of what we know about shark behavior today. He started the Bimini um, Field Station uh, in Bahamas, Uh, attracted a lot of studies there, a lot of students to look into, especially lemon shark, because they are closer and easier. And he did so much study, so much work. And that is because the Navy funded him to found a solution to keep sharks away from a uh, sailor after the Indianapolis disaster. Oh, so it was that's what, so the Indianapolis that w- that was, was the catalyst? yeah. The that's trigger. one of the triggers. And uh, Dr. Gruber worked on uh, devices that they can put out smell in the water like rotten shark, uh, some, you know, chemicals that will um, keep sharks away. And magnets as well. That is where our shark safe barrier war comes from as well, using magnets to deter sharks.
0: Yeah, so just explain a little bit about the shark safe barrier. We both are involved in it. You're one of the founders of the shark safe barrier. And proudly, we Probably are so. saying that we want to manage the the human shark conflict without killing humans or sharks, for that matter, and any other animal. So, yeah. you know, the, we've also spoken about the shark nets being, uh, you know, Massively, the gill nets mm. that are now still in in Australia and uh, East Coast are destructive. So yes. maybe you can just tell us a little bit, uh, you know, with the technology, like you said, with Dr. Gruber and how our specific barrier works.
1: Yeah, sure. we we build this technology with two shark deterrent system. One is exactly the magnets um, because sharks have a sixth sense that we don't have, uh, and that fishes don't have either. Uh, sharks have the same senses we do. Plus the lateral line you were um, talking about earlier, that fishes also have, plus the ampullae of Lorenzini, and with that sense that are little dots, pores around the nose, around the eyes, with uh, a channel inside with gel, and then at the end of the channel they have nerves that connect directly to their brain, and when there is uh, changes in polarization in the water caused by magnetism or um, electricity, the shark can detect this uh, electricity moving. And they use it to detect where their preys are, because every time you move a muscle, you get electricity running out. And if you put a very strong magnet in the water, the sharks don't like it. Within one to two meters, again, it's not a kilometers exercise. Mm. So what we did with the shark safe barrier was putting these strong magnets inside pipes that resemble a forest of kelp, which is another shark deterrent. Large uh, sharks that need to swim all the time to oxygenate their gills, don't like the idea of getting entangled. They also don't have a reverse. So if they see a, um, a kelp forest, they try to avoid getting in. And we built this barrier with the combination of these two systems, and they proved very effective. So now we are trying to create safe area for surfers and swimmer without getting the shark or the rest of marine life killed.
0: You know, my time in the sharks, what I always realized that the challenge comes with a very aggressive coastline that we have in South Africa. I'm just using an example. There are areas like New Caledonia and the Bahamas where it's much simpler to put in our barrier, but. Um, how do we do it in, a, in aggressive surf zones like Natal?
1: Well, that is the beauty of coping from nature. Our kelp forest is one of the nature's best design of vertical element that can cope with the oceanic uh, waves. So by coping with that, it took us like six years to get it right. But now we tested it in, in South Africa and, and the system now is very strong. So it's much different than having a a fixed fence in the water.
0: Our next episode is going to be based on events that happen in real life and the movie The Reef was actually based on this event that took place. So I think that's quite exciting.
1: Shark Stories is proudly sponsored by the Shark Safe Barrier, the first shark-specific and eco-friendly solution to the shark-human conflict.